And so I believe that God is doing something in our region. He's doing something in New England. We are praying for revival and believing for God to shift things in our nation. Amen? We don't look to the White House. We don't look to government. We don't look to people. We look to Jesus. Amen? And so let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, right now we pray that as we shift and look into your word, Holy Spirit, may you come and make this word alive. Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit is our helper and he reveals truth. And so, God, we come against every veil of deception that the enemy has put over eyes, over minds this morning. And we ask that your word would break every yoke, every burden that is not of you, God. We pray for a greater understanding in your word. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to apply it, that we would not just be listeners and hearers of your word, but we would be doers. Each and every one of us has a divine appointment for when we step off of this property today. Lord, you have people that you want us to meet in our workplaces. You have people that you want us to meet in in the grocery stores, in our coffee places. Wherever we go, God, as we are in tune to your spirit, we pray that you would open up our eyes to the lost. God, as we look into the doctrine of the salvation of man, God, may it come alive and may we be reminded how amazing it is that it is your grace that we are saved. It is by your mercy that we are saved. And so, God, we lift up every family, every family dynamic, and we pray that you begin to turn things around. And when the circumstances don't, way that we look at them. Lord, I pray for every hopeless situation that the enemy has been speaking to people, of people and their families, people who are lost, where the enemy is continually discouraging the prayers warriors who are seeking out, God, salvation for their loved ones. I pray that this morning, oh God, that you would remind them that you are on the move. I pray that you would remind them that you are speaking and that you are working. Even when we don't see it or sense it, you are doing something in the big picture. And so, God, we submit to you. We trust in you. We believe that all things are in your hands. We believe that you are sovereign. And Lord, we believe that you are coming soon for a spotless bride, your church, oh God. And so do in us what you need to do this morning so that we can do what we are called to do this week. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. So as I mentioned before, we are doing the series on doctrine and Last week, I just have to say again, Brother Pasquale, are you in here? You might be counting. But wasn't it an amazing message last week talking about just sin, right, and the fall of man? And it can be a depressing topic. I'm glad he got that one. Pastor, thank you for giving me salvation and giving Brother Pasquale uh, the fall of man. So I get to talk about the good stuff this morning. But we have to understand that we do have salvation, but there was a price that had to be paid for that salvation. And the Lord, as I was praying this morning, uh, the Lord, we're, he kind of changed the direction we're going to go in this morning. And uh, the focus this morning is going to be, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew. If you could put that other sermon slide up, Paul, just on salvation. You know what the definition of salvation is? Such a good definition. Deliverance from ruin and loss. Just as simple. Salvation is deliverance from ruin and loss. So um, we're going to jump first to John chapter 3. I'm going to kind of be all over the place because salvation is a big spectrum. And, and so I want to kind of take you to the Old Testament as well as to the New Testament. But we're going to start first in John chapter 3. We'll have it up on the screens for you. 
But I want to encourage you, if you do have a Bible, to follow along. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the next verse, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so this morning, as I was talking with the Lord, we are in a culture where it's all about lifting ourselves up, right? It's all about getting ahead. Whether you have a job in the corporate world, it's, it's all about getting your name out there. It's all, about, uh, it's all about making your name great, and that's where we measure, and as a culture, success, amen? And what the Lord is showing me, what he wants to do in America, and what he's beginning to do in America, is there's a revival that is beginning to take place. It's starting in the college universities. We saw an amazing move of God at Asbury University where God was just getting a hold of people and people were coming in, thousands of people. And so it's, it's frustrating when you watch it on the news, you want God to do it here, right? You say, God, do it here. And so I believe that there's a preparation that must take place before God moves in revival. And I believe what God wants to do this morning and what he wants to do at the altars is he wants to take down man, ourselves. We lift ourselves up too much and we want God to move. We want God to bring revival. And what the Lord was telling me, I was driving last week and just the simplicity, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And we are in a culture right now where even in the church world, people go to church for a person. They go to church for music. They, they go to church for all of these different things other than Jesus. And, and the job of a pastor, the job of leadership is to point people to Jesus. You know, we went to a, um, a conference recently in Boston and we were able to hear Francis Chan speak. And something I love about Francis Chan that a lot of people don't know of, he's a big name, but he actually left his church because it was growing so fast and he was sensing that people were coming just for him. You know, where do we have in culture someone stepping down because the church is growing? And what I believe is, you know, God is going to bring growth and not everyone needs to step down just because of growth. But he recognized in his heart that people aren't coming for Jesus, they're coming for me. And he took himself out of the picture. And I believe if we want to see God move in our lives, we've got to get out of the way. We have to get out of the way of ourselves. And, and God is doing that. He's, he's putting a humility in his people. And when we humble ourselves, that's when God can move. That's when God can lift us up. Amen? It is, is not an easy thing, though. Right? No one wants to jump on the altar and say, God, humble me. But how many of you have been humbled before and it's not a good feeling? But it's a good thing because it's in our humility that the anointing comes. Amen? And so I believe that this morning God is going to break that off. And what I love about this scripture, if you can put it back up, Paul, it's simply saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You know, we have this moment in Israel's history where they were let out of Egypt, out of slavery. God is providing for them in the wilderness. Their shoes aren't wearing out. Their clothes aren't wearing out. 
and God is providing food for them on the way to the promised land. And so Israel gets to this point where they are frustrated and they begin grumbling against leadership. They begin grumbling against God. And what's amazing is if you go back just a few verses um, in that text in the Old Testament, they were actually murmuring among themselves. And now they've gotten to a place where they're no longer murmuring, they're actually grumbling to God's face. And how many of you know in our lives, sometimes when we talk about what things that we're frustrated with, it starts with a murmur, right? It starts when we tell a few people. But then when we get frustrated, it, we, we begin to get more bold in it. And so now the Israelites are getting frustrated and they're, they're talking against God. And so what God does is he sends these fiery serpents into the camp. Any snake people in here? Any snake lovers? We'll pray for you. We've got one over here, one over here. We'll have some time on this side of the altar to pray for you. But my only experience with a snake was when I was in eighth grade, my science teacher, Mr. Taft, took us on a, a, an overnight trip. That was his first mistake. One, that he took our class. Two, that it was an overnight. And so... Uh, me and a few of my friends, we like to cause trouble, we like to spice things up, and so uh, we got up early in the morning, and the girls had this huge tent that was in the middle of the, the camp, and so one of my friends, uh, Rich, uh, went and found this snake, and so we wanted to just, you know, wake up the girls, and so what we did is we, we unzipped their tent just enough to fit the snake in there, and then we put the zipper shut, and I, I, I'm not sure, if the, I, but I think he tied it, tied the zipper or used like a pin to keep it shut. And then what we did is we, we put our sleeping bags on the outside and we just, we just sat on the mulch like this and we just waited because they were sleeping and, and there was no movement in the tent. So we put the snake in and then we put it down and we literally, a row of guys, we're just sitting and we're waiting and we're waiting anticipation. And all of a sudden you, you hear a little rustling and you know girls, right? When one screams, the other ones in there, they don't know what's going on, but they, in unison, screamed together. And it was like one scream turned into many screams. The tent pegs literally pulled out of the ground, and they were running inside the tent. And this snake is bouncing around and hitting the girls as they're screaming. They're clawing. You see fingernails clawing at the sides. And it was a great show. It was worth it. It was... All I remember is one of the chaperones grabbing us by our necks and dragging us through the mulch. We were in so much trouble. The school ended the overnight trips. Our class ruined it for that. But I will honestly say today, it was worth it. <laughs> it was worth it. It's a great memory. I don't think anyone can tie a memory to a snake to a good thing. But when we look at the nation of Israel, we have this moment where... God is frustrated because now they're talking against him. And what, what's happening is these snakes are coming into the camp and they're actually biting the people and the poison from these snakes, people are literally dying. And you have this moment where God tells Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze snake and put it on the staff and I want you to lift it up. And those who have been bitten by these snakes will be saved. What is so ridiculous is the fact that Moses had to do that. And what we do as man is we like to take things that God does in the Bible. This is why I believe that Jesus didn't tell us everything that he did. Because what we do is we tend to take what Jesus does and we want to make it into a template, right? And we want, that's what the church does. And so it's not about a bronze snake. It's not about a staff. It's about obedience to what God said. And what God was saying is all the people have to do in their pain, in their infliction, is to look upon the snake and they will be healed. 
This morning, I want to take you through four points of we look at how does the salvation of man fit into our story. And there's four things that the Lord gave me. We're going to talk about the deal. We're going to talk about the dilemma, the detriment, and the deliverance. Four simple things are going to help us walk through our salvation. Now, in the book that Pastor Richard is going through with the class, and there's also a life group, uh, the, there's so much in there, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, how am I going to present this to the church? This could be like a series for years. And so I prayed, and I just want to talk about the simple word of atonement this morning. Atonement, according to the book, it says this, the translation of the Hebrew is an intensive form that means covering with a price. The atonement is the act of God whereby sins are covered by the price of shed blood, showing that the wages of sin have been paid and God can once again look upon us with favor. Isn't that awesome? All that you have ever done in your life, all that you will ever do in your life has been paid for. Isn't that amazing? The enemy is an accuser of us. So whenever we, we move into the things of God, you will always have the accuser who will come and he'll start speaking things about your past. He'll, he'll start telling you, you're not worthy to stand in that place. You're not worthy to speak that. But we have the Messiah who came down from heaven, who shed his blood as an atonement, and that blood covered the sins that we did. Amen? And we can celebrate that as a church. And so point number one is simply this. It's the deal. It all started with a deal. Anyone ever make deals before? You ever watch that show, Let's Make a Deal? Isn't it so funny how people like, the, has anyone ever seen that show? They'll, they'll make them a deal. They'll say, you get a choice. We have three curtains, and behind one curtain is a vacation for, you know, for your whole family, and behind another one is a car, and then they have another one called a zonk, I think, which is just something ridiculous. It's like a bale of hay with a shirt on it. And so they have these people. They'll say, I'm going to give you 500 bucks, so you can keep the 500 bucks, or you can pick one of the curtains. And I watch the show. I have an issue. I have a problem. I watch it for different reasons. I love when the people decide to push the money away, and then they pick the curtain where it's like the, the hay bale with the T-shirt. This is a family that, that could really use the vacation, and they're thinking, oh, oh, this would be awesome when my family can go away. They push the money away, and then they pick the curtain, and it's a horrible thing. I love watching that. I love seeing that kind of stuff because... We all make deals in our lives. Some deals are good, some deals aren't. And so it all started with a deal. If we go to the book of Genesis, the very beginning, in Genesis, God made a deal with us, didn't he? And was the deal good? It was, right? It was good because God said it was good. So if you can turn with me, I want to go to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to go to verse 28. It says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's amazing is God creates this world, and he gives us dominion over it. Isn't that awesome? We get dominion over the animals. We get dominion over everything. And he goes on to say, and God said, behold, I have given, every, given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. So God gives them protection. He gives them dominion. He gives them food. How many people love food in here? I love food. He gives them food. It's a good deal, right? Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and by creeps, snakes, right? Snakes are creepy, right? 
He goes on to say, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that had, he had made, and behold, it was very good. You know, we look at our world right now, and it's not very good. We look at what's happening in Israel right now, and it's not very good. And our youth group, we've been talking about the very basics as well. And our teens are looking at the world, and it's not very good. And what happens is, is we look at God and we say, God can't be a good God because what I'm looking at is not very good. But we have to understand that when God created everything from the beginning, he called it good. People don't understand that. This is why it's important to understand doctrine. It's important to see the Bible as a whole story. God created stuff for us and he called it very good. We're the ones who messed it up. Has anyone ever in here started something that was good, but did it, it didn't end too great? Anyone in here want to raise their hand and be honest with me here this morning? Sometimes we have good intentions when we start things, but it, it doesn't end very good. My wife and I love watching those memes that they have of people who go on Pinterest, and they try and make these beautiful cakes. And, and there's one where it shows this, like, beautiful lamb cake, and it's like they, they use piping, and it looked, it, the frosting made it look fluffy. And then it showed the person who actually made it. And it looked like the lamb went through a paper shredder. It was like the eye, one eye was bigger, another one was bigger. It looked like the, the wool was shaved off. And so people have good intentions, but it doesn't always come out the way that we had planned. And so God gave us this amazing deal, but we messed it up. Could we jump to Genesis 2 and go to verse 15? Genesis 2, verse 15. And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Everybody say every tree. tree. You know, this is where we get angry with God. We think God has this massive list of rules. That's why a lot of people don't want to come to church or become Christian, because they think, well, then I'm going to have to give up everything. God literally had one rule. Everybody say one rule. He said, I'm giving you all this, just don't eat this. One choice. You have all this. Just don't eat this. And what does our human nature do? We eat this. And so he says this to them, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. Die. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to touch that. We, we, we think that in our good intentions that, well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done what they did. Human nature tells us something different, doesn't it? And so you have to understand in the doctrine of salvation, it all started with a deal. The definition of deal is this. It's an agreement entered into by two or more parties for their mutual benefit. That's what a deal is by definition. So in the scriptures, God gave us everything that we would ever need. Dominion, food, protection. He gave a woman to Adam. He gave a a, a helpmate. They had everything that they needed. But the enemy came in, he deceived the woman, and God said, if you do this, you will surely die. When God says things, sometimes his word goes out and can't be changed. God felt horrible when they bit into that apple. It wasn't about the apple, it was about disobedience. You know, we see in the Bible that it says that God came into the garden in the cool of the day. And, you know, you think of like this morning. Anyone realize that fall just came this morning, right? 
we had our air conditioning on just yesterday and we got stepped outside and it was like, oh my goodness. And so we think of that phrase, cool of the day. And oh, and when Adam and Eve sinned, God just came frolicking in and saying, it's okay, everything's gonna be okay. No, I actually heard someone say that the cool of the day is translated like a hurricane wind where trees are actually breaking and snapping. Because what they did is they broke the covenant. We have to understand that we broke the deal. We broke the deal and it broke our relationship and our fellowship with God. But we have a God who knew we were going to do it and he already put into place a plan to fix it. Isn't that awesome? Nothing ever takes God by surprise. Amen? Amen. And so we have a God who knew we would mess up and still put into operation a plan. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning with this idea of the salvation of man. So number one, we have the deal. Number two, we have the dilemma. So when we broke the deal, we now had a dilemma to face. Anybody in here have dilemmas? I've got dilemmas. You got dilemmas? We got dilemmas. Everybody's got dilemmas. Remember Oprah was giving all those cars out? She said, you get a car, you got a car, you got a dilemma, you got a dilemma. We've all got dilemmas this morning. <laughs> dilemma means this. It's a difficult situation or a problem. So when we broke the deal... A dilemma came. Jesus said, what would happen if they ate of the fruit? They would die. And so that's a problem. How many of you know? That's a problem. If they tell you you're going to die, that's a problem. That's a dilemma. I want to go to the book of Hosea and look at a different angle of a dilemma. So Hosea chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Hosea was a prophet. He was someone who was handpicked by God to speak on behalf of God to the people. We have to understand context. Whenever we read the Bible, we have to understand context. And so Hosea is called to the scene where King Jeroboam II is now king. And he's reigning in Israel. And, and the thing with Jeroboam is that the economy at that time was booming. Everything was happening. Jobs. All of these things were good. But the state of the nation of Israel was in spiritual, moral decay. And there's a purpose why God called Hosea to begin to preach at this time because how many of you know we can be prosperous, but it's when we are prosperous that we can forget God, right? We don't need God. And what was happening is the Israelites who were relying on God in the wilderness were now in the promised land where they had protection, they had all of their needs met. And when God puts us in seasons where we have everything that we need, it can be very difficult to rely on God. We can rely on our own strength. We can rely on our, what we want to rely on. I was arguing with someone who, who does not believe in God, and, and, and we were debating back and forth, and this person was saying, well, God's not the one who's giving me my My name is on the paycheck. I'm the one putting in the hours. I'm the one doing the work. But with our relationship with God, we have to go a little deeper than that. It's God who actually puts the oxygen in our lungs. It is God who gives us a, a spirit of skill. 
when he told them to build the tabernacle, it says that God actually put a spirit of skill in people. It wasn't just about bringing a cloth and putting it on a thing. They had to hammer gold and had to hammer bronze and fashion all of these things. And that just doesn't come to people, but it says that he put a spirit of skill in people. So even when things are prosperous, even when things are good, we have to stay in a spirit of humility and give glory to God in all that we do. God, I thank you that I have my job. God is a God of promotion. He doesn't want us down here. He wants to lift us up. But we have to constantly be in a place where if God lifts us up or if God promotes us or if God is allowing our business to flourish, then we have to come to a place where we are giving glory for God. God, thank you for the increase in my business. It's you that has given me the spirit of skill to do the task that you've called me to do. But Israel at this time got into a cocky, prideful place where things were great economically, but spiritually things were rotting and dying away. And so God calls Hosea to the scene, and he says in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great this is crazy. I was actually sharing this with someone who had never read the Bible before, and they were like, their jaw hit the floor. They're like, that's in the Bible? And I'm like, yes, it's in the Bible. The Bible is so relevant. God told Hosea to go marry someone who he knew was going to be unfaithful. How hard is that? It's hard enough now for people to get into relationships, right? A lot of things are done online, and, and, and so it's changed. So it's hard sometimes to get into a relationship because you have to learn to trust that other person. No one gets into a relationship and says, I hope that they commit adultery on me. I hope that they're unfaithful to me. No one gets into a relationship with that, that mindset. However, God tells Hosea, I want you to go into this relationship with a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you because he wants to show a picture of the nation of Israel, God's people, and us in a relationship with him. Now, we have to think of how hard this must have been for Hosea. I cannot even imagine you marry this woman, and then she's getting up, and he's sitting there watching as she's putting her perfume on, putting these clothes on that are not for him. And she goes out the door, and she's spending the night over these men's houses. There's nights where Hosea might turn over, and, and Gomer, which was the name of her, she's in the bed next to him. But there's nights where he rolls over and there's an empty spot because she's in another man's bed. And this was God's picture of what we were doing to him. We broke the deal because sin came into our lives. The wages of sin is what? Is death. Atonement means it's a covering for that. But someone had to pay it. And so we have this relationship where Hosea is now having children with this woman. And the names, we don't have time this morning to get fully into it, but he was telling God to name the children. How many of you know it's important when you named your kids? You don't just spin a wheel and just name them for naming them's sake. In the Bible days, name was identity. So he has this, this child with Gomer, and he tells them to name one of them no mercy. So every time Hosea called his child's name, it was a reminder of, that God's mercy is going to be pulled away from the people of God. They had another child, and you know what he told them to name him? I want you to name him not my people. So every time you call that child, it's going to remind her that this is no longer my people. I was reading some commentaries where even there's some debate where some of the commentaries are saying that that might have not even been Hosea's son. And so we have this 
woman who is in quite a dilemma. And I want us to go to verse two, uh, verse eight of chapter two of Hosea. You know what, let's go to verse five first. So Hosea chapter two, verse five. Listen to this. Now, Gomer did not come home and apologize to Hosea and saying, I'm sorry I did this. This is just a cycle I'm trying to break. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. She said this in verse 5, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Listen to this. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Hosea is marrying him and his wife is going to him and saying, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you I'm going to go to these other men and they're going to give me my food. They're going to give me my protection. They're going to give me my clothes. They're going to give me what I need. But look at verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used Bail. So God not only tells Hosea, go and marry this woman who will be unfaithful to you, I want you to still provide for her and give her her basic needs while she's going out. How many of you would be like, that's it, peace, I'm out of here, I'm taking off my prophetic robe, I'm done with this, I can't handle this. But Hosea was obedient to the Lord because God was trying to draw a picture of how we are. When we get to a place where we are prospering, where we get to a place where God is doing good things in our lives, it's very easy for that spirit to come in and for us to begin to take credit. I wish we had more time to get into this story, but we have this powerful example where um, it gets to a point where God even says, if she continues doing this, I'm going to strip her bare. I'm going to make her skin like leather. I'm going to take away all of her things. The crazy thing is Hosea was, a, a, Gomer was a prostitute, but she wasn't even doing this for the money. And so she came to a point in life where all her money was gone. All of her clothes were gone. And you know what they would do in the Bible days? Slavery is different in the Bible days than it is the way that we look at it. When we see slavery in the Bible days, you became a slave for one of three reasons. Number one, it was warfare. So if there was a war and the enemy nation came and won, you were taken into slavery. The second was if you were born into slavery. So if an enemy nation came in and you are now a slave because you are now exiled into that nation, if you were born into that, you were a slave. This, the third thing of how you became a slave, and this is where Gomer was, was if you needed to pay a debt off. It was more of an employment thing where if you had no money, you could actually make yourself a slave and sell yourself to pay off that debt or work to pay it off. So in the Bible days, when you were unfaithful, you know what they would do is they would, they would strip you down. And, Jose, and now Gomer is at a place where she's despised her husband. She's told him, I'm, I'm going to be unfaithful to you, and I'm going to get everything that I ever need from other people. And now she's in a season where they actually put her up in the public square and have stripped her down. She no longer has the perfume or the robes or the money. She's, she's, and what they would do is they would strip you down to almost nothing so that the people who were bidding for you could see if you were healthy enough for them to purchase you. And in walks Hosea. We cannot imagine what this scene must have been. 
He walks to the public square where people are trying to bid for his wife. And God tells him, I want you to go buy her back. I want you to redeem her. Redeem means to buy back. So what he does is he lays out 15 shekels of silver and, 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 and uh, barley. And what's interesting is in the Old Testament, if a woman was unfaithful and a husband felt that she was cheating, that what they would do is they would bring the wife to the high priest in the temple. And sometimes what they would say is this would help against the spirit of jealousy. And so what they would do is he would bring his wife to the priest and the priest would take the woman and he would put her in the presence of God. And then what he would do is he would put um, barley in her hands and he would get holy water and he would take dust from the floor of the tabernacle and he would put it in this vial. And what it would do is would make, it would make the water bitter. And when, if you were unfaithful, you actually called curses upon yourself. So he would actually write down curses on a piece of paper, scrape the dry ink powder and put it in that water. And the way he would be able to tell if she was unfaithful or not is he would make her drink the water. And if she was unfaithful, then something would happen where the water would actually cause bitter pain in her womb. It says that her, her womb would actually rot and she would no longer be able to give life. So it wouldn't happen overnight. But when she, and what she would do is she would make a vow before the Lord. And then she would go back into society. So then if she was no longer conceiving, then the public would know that she was being unfaithful. If she was faithful and it was just the husband being a jerk or being insecure, then she would give life. Life would come from her and people would realize, okay, she, she was being faithful. Isn't that crazy? Aren't you glad that we don't do that nowadays? Our society doesn't have the temple. We did, they just use the Maury show, right? That's what we use right now. The lie detector determined that you were a lie. You know, you've watched it before. You've run around the living room like I have when you're excited that the person being accused wasn't the one. We have our methods now. But isn't it interesting that Hosea comes with 15 shekels of silver and barley? Gomer was not in a place where they have to see if she's unfaithful. She's already said, I'm unfaithful. We don't have to go before God to see if we're sinners. We are sinners. So we've, we've broken the deal that God gave us. We've fallen into quite a dilemma. Point number three is we have the deal we have the dilemma, and we have the detriment. Detriment is defined as this, the state of being harmed or damaged. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you in here this morning, you have been damaged by things in your past. People have done things, they have said things to you, and it's damaged the way that you view yourself, it's damaged the way that you view other people. And it's a, it's a, it's a detriment. We're going to get to the good part because Hosea is a representation of Jesus coming to redeem us. But we still have to talk about the mess. And so we're in this state of being damaged. Gomer is on the auction block. 
Paul writes this in Romans 6, 16. He says, do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. What you obey is what you are a slave to. I believe that this morning God is going to break addictions. He's going to break patterns, things that you've been trying to do on your own. You've been trying to pay back a debt that you cannot pay back. That is the cycle of sin. When we think we have what it takes to break us out of those cycles. The salvation of man is the most important doctrine that we have because we broke the deal. We got into a dilemma and we are now damaged and standing in a place where we deserve death. Psalm 14, two through three says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And look what verse three says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Even our best deeds are but filthy rags. Because if we can do enough good to get out of our debt, then there's no need for a savior. And every other religion will tell you that you can do good deeds, you can do good works, and that's how you get to heaven. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one person who is good, and that is Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be lifting up this morning. There are things this morning that God has to lay down in some of you. It's hard to lay down things. But when we lay things down, then Jesus Christ is lifted up. And when Jesus Christ is lifted up, then he draws people to him. So at your work, you're trying to think, well, how can I, how can I get people saved? How can I get people to come to church? How can I do? You can't do any of that. But when Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to him. Amen? Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteousness deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There was a shame that Gomer was experiencing that was horrible. Anyone ever experienced shame in their life in here? There was a moment, um, I used to play basketball and for those who played in the 2000s, remember the snap pants? Remember those pants that had snaps from the top to the bottom and you were, they were warm-up pants? And it was the best thing. When you were on varsity, you would get team-colored pants and tops and you would put it on and you'd be sitting on the bench and when the coach called your name, you'd pull the pants off. You wouldn't pull them down. You'd just pull them off and all the snaps would come off and you'd run in. It was a great thing. And I loved those things. And I remember one of these times I was wearing them and I pulled those things like a lawnmower and I realized I didn't have my shorts on. <laughs> There is not enough time for you to sit and try and assemble each one of those snaps to cover up what has now been uncovered. I never put those snap pants on again. I don't even think I wore them for warm-ups anymore. To this day, I think I still struggle with the, the memory of that. But the shame and the embarrassment, let me tell you, There are things in our lives that we do that you've done. 
no one else knows about, maybe a couple people. If they were to become exposed, that's what we call shame. I've done thing in my, things in my past, things that I tried to hide, tried to cover up. Many of you know I was in a relationship to be engaged, and, and even in the marriage counseling, I was covering things up. And when I did that, I was also praying for God to use me. I wanted to be in his will. And so things got exposed. The relationship fell apart. I was actually so much in shame that I could not even call my groomsmen to tell them that the relationship was over. I was so embarrassed. So when God gave me another relationship, what it did is it changed the way that I did things. He brought people in my life that I allowed in to help. God is not looking for perfection. We don't have to get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. You don't get clean and then take a shower. You go in the shower to get clean in the same way we come to Jesus. And unfortunately, I believe that the church in whole has given the world the wrong message. We have made it too difficult for people to come to Jesus. We have too many rules, too many regulations, too many things that we're telling people that they need to do. And what happens is people are too overwhelmed. And Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? I've made it the easiest way. And we've messed it up. We don't get clean and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus as you are filth and your muck and your sin. Amen. Jesus looks at us in our shame. He looks at us in our filth and our nastiness. And he puts out the payment, which was his blood, to purchase us back, to redo the deal that we broke. That is the message that the world needs to hear. Amen. The last point, and I'm going to have the worship team come up. Can we turn to Numbers 21? I wasn't going to go here, but I want to go here. Numbers chapter 21. We read it in the Old Testament, uh, New Testament in John, but I want to go back to it in the Old Testament. The need to be lifted up right now needs to die this morning. It has to die. What we're seeing in Israel, what we're seeing in our nation, there's an urgency, that, and we know that Jesus is coming back. God's desire is that none would perish. And so God is on the move right now. And we need to come to a place where we are presenting the word of God in all its fullness without anything from man added and mixed into it. 
there's a restaurant that Tara and I love to go to, and it's the original restaurant, and they opened up a second one. So we decided to go to the second one, and we ordered the same exact things, but it didn't taste as good as the original. Because this new place has new cooks, maybe they don't have the same recipe, maybe they put in other things, but we went back to the original one just the other night, and it was like we were in heaven. The mac and cheese, you would not believe the mac and cheese. The coal-fired pizza, it was like, this is where it's all at. This is the original. Nothing mixed in on the outside, or let's try this, or stop messing with perfection. That's what I want to tell people. If something's good, stop messing with it. God has given us a perfect formula to give to a dying, decaying world. We don't have to put our things in it to mess it up. All we have to do is to present it to people. And people will take it or they'll push it away. It's not our job to save people. It's not our job to debate people into the kingdom of heaven. It's our job to present the gospel message. And Jesus does the hard work. There's a point where even Jesus says, when you go to a town and they don't listen to you, what does he say to do? He says to shake off the dust from your sandals, shake it off as a testimony against them and go to the next town. The problem is, is we stay in the same place and debate and do all this stuff. And what's happening is it's, it's, it's hindering the kingdom of God moving forward. There will be people who, in your life, when you present the gospel, who want nothing to do with it. But there will be people in your life, when you present the simplest thing, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it was that easy? We don't have to complicate the formula. And so... In Numbers, did you guys turn there? It says in verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Everybody say to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Have any of you ever felt impatient in your walk with God? I'm putting up two hands. You know, what's interesting is God was leading them to the promised land, but the Edomites would not allow the Israelites to go through their land. So they actually had to go around and almost double the journey back. How many know it's frustrating when you're moving forward in the things of God and all of a sudden it feels like you're going backwards? They were, their backs were to the, 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 the place of slavery in Egypt. They're moving ahead. Their eyes are set on the promised land. And then they have a detour. And so they have to turn around. So now their eyes are back to where they came from and they have to walk in that direction. God brings us to moments in our spiritual walk where he tests us. He said, I'm not bringing you back to where you came from, but I'm bringing you a different route. And instead of the people of God trusting God, it said that they began to grumble. So look what the text goes on to say. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of the land, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Oh my goodness. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the God to take away the serpents from us. This is a picture of salvation, church. They realized they were in sin because the venom of the snakes was going through their body, causing searing pain, taking life from them. I read this thing about uh, snake venom. It says that it destroys the outer membrane of the cap uh, capillary vessels, causing internal bleeding. In some cases, they can also activate the blood clotting system. So the venom from snakes activates a blood clotting system, causing clots around the circulatory system. These have the ability to block blood vessels, induce a stroke or heart attack. 
So the people of God are getting bit and this poison is running through their body. Because we broke the deal, sin entered into our lives and the decay of sin is, is, is causing pain, it's causing sickness, it's causing disease. And so Jesus doesn't make this formula or say, you've got to take this class, if you've got to fill out this connection card, or you've got to start serving this many years. He says, set up a snake that is bronze and lift it up to the people and all they have to do is look at it and the sickness, the venom in their body will be gone. This is what an anti-venom does. If injected quickly after a bite or a sting, the antibodies and anti-venom neutralize the venom, potentially saving the victim's life or limb. We don't realize how simple it is. The gospel message is so simple to people who are dying. This is it. If someone is bitten by a snake and they're literally in their tent and they're lying on the ground because the venom is kicking in and they have no ability to move, all they had to do was drag themselves to the foot of their tent and to look at that snake and that venom is gone. The sickness is gone. The problem is in the church world is we look at people who are living in sin and we get down on their level and we say, well, you've got to fill this out. You've got to take these four steps. You've got to do all these things. You've got to take this class with 18 different things. People are dying and just need to know there's an anti-venom. I want to share this story before I close. And many of you know Tara lost her uncle. This past weekend, she got a call Thursday night and he was in the ICU at Rhode Island Hospital and things weren't going well, so we made a plan. We're gonna go see him Friday night when she gets out of work. And um, many of you don't know, her uncle fought religion his whole life. And so we both felt we wanna go, we wanna pray with him. But the thing that he had in his body was quickly deteriorating and so she was gonna get out around 3.30, we were gonna drop the girls off and we were gonna go. And I'm actually driving the church van on Route 6 to go to BJ's to get some supplies for the church. And I, and I was actually talking to Pastor Maureen about it as well. And she was even saying, well, I think you should go. And I was like, yeah, I thought about that, but I don't wanna go without Tara. And so I kind of made it up in my mind, I'll just wait. But as I'm driving the van, I felt the spirit of the Lord say, you need to go. I actually saw in my head the van full of the groceries and, and going to the place. Cause I was like, well, I'm on Route 6, do I, get off and go around, and the Lord showed me that, and I said, okay, I can get the supplies. So I get the supplies, and I'm on my way. I actually text Tara, and I said, do you mind if I, do you think I should go? She replied and said, yes. And so I'm driving the 15-passenger van, the mall is, the, the, the uh, hospital is like packed. I'm like, where the heck am I gonna park a 15-passenger van? This car literally backs up and goes and leaves. It was like a perfect pull-in spot. So I pull in, I'm running into the hospital, I'm trying to find this place, and anyone ever been in Rhode Island Hospital? Oh my goodness, maze. And I'm running around, I'm asking people, and then they give you the directions, go down this corridor, follow all the way to the right till you come to the end, take a left, go up the elevators, come out, take a right, four steps to the side, and there's the second door on your, your, your right to the middle. And so I, I get there, and I walk in the room, and he's there, and he's not doing well. He can no longer talk. And I'm praying. There's nothing that I have to give. I'm praying, I'm like, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm literally praying in my head, Holy Spirit. Like, and we're talking about how this man does not want anything to do with God. And so I'm talking to his wife and his daughter. And, and I just said, do you mind if I pray for him? She goes, absolutely. And so 
I just came over and I simply said, and she said he can actually hear. And so when she would talk, he would actually respond. And so I just simply went up to him and I said, you need Jesus just as much as I do. And I need him just as much as you do. I said, that's the simplicity of the gospel. I've messed things up in my life. You've messed things up in your life. And I said to him, if you can tighten your eyes really tight in response to what I'm saying, can you do that? And he did. And, and his wife looked and said, wow, he's actually responding. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with you now. And so I laid my hands on his head and I just prayed the simple prayer. And so I stayed with them. I talked to them about the Lord and, and you could just feel the presence of God in the room. And so we came home and uh, Tara got out of work and we were dropping the girls off at the house. Actually, Shanna, Caleb, Kelly, and Lloyd were all there and they said, we'll take the girls. And so we're literally going out the door to go to the hospital and Tara gets a call from her grandmother that he passed. But God, but God, someone who fought their entire life. The thief on the cross didn't have to get baptized. He didn't have to go through the 16 fundamentals of the Assembly of God class. He didn't have to fill out a connection card and get a gift at the Welcome Center. He didn't have to come and serve at the church a year before he could do anything. He looked over at Jesus on the cross, saw who he was, and Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is what the world needs to hear. A simple confession of faith. I'm not saying all those things are bad. We need discipleship. But when people are dying, they don't need to hear about doctrine and all these other things. They need to hear about the anti-venom that is for sin and that is the blood of Jesus Christ that is injected into every person who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he became that curse for us. They said that the money that Hosea paid for, um, for his wife, Gomer. He said it was 15 shekels of silver. This isn't real silver, right? It's not real silver. This is just fake coins. But it said that the amount of barley that was used with the 15 shekels came to 30 shekels of silver. So Hosea bought his wife back for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas came, what will you give me for Jesus? He didn't say I wanted 30. They said he's worth about 30 shekels. And they counted out for him 30 shekels of silver. And he betrayed the son of man. The curse that should have been on Gomer was taken away because she was redeemed. And the curse that was, should be put on us and our sin, Jesus was betrayed for the amount of what we should have been redeemed. Can you stand with me right now? The definition of deliverance is the action of being rescued or set free. John 15, five, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, everybody say in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace. Gomer was brought back even though she deserved it. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pour these out on the steps right here. And what the Lord told me is he's gonna break some things. We've got to die to some things this morning. We have a world that has the venom of sin pumping through its body. And we have a room full of people that God wants to use to carry the gospel of salvation. And what I want to do right now, I'm gonna to count to three, if you feel like you've got to lower some things in your lives, if you feel like you have raised things up in your life and you have people in your workplace that might be looking at you instead of looking at Jesus, God is going to lay some things down this morning so that Jesus Christ can be lifted up and you're gonna see your work environments change. You're gonna see your family dynamics change. And what I want us to do is we've gotta get on our face this morning and we've gotta ask the Holy Spirit to put his finger on the things in our lives that we need to lay down. We need to spend some time at these altars. And what I want you to do is when you are done, you pick, pick up a coin and you take that with you. There's nothing special about it, but you have to understand that you were redeemed. That no matter what the enemy wants to do, no matter what he wants to say, remind you of your past and of your sin, you take a coin with you, you keep it in your pocket, and wherever you go, whenever you hear that accusation, you hold that coin and let it be a sign to you that everything that you have ever done has been bought and it has been paid. No longer does the enemy need to accuse you of the things of your past. If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then he is going to come in and pay. We were all strapped up in that public square in our shame, in our filth, and Jesus Christ came, he picked up that cross and he moved and went to Calvary. He was slung up. He said, I need to be lifted up because I am the antidote. I am the anti-venom to the sin that is decaying in this world. And when I am lifted up, everyone can become saved. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your, what you've done in your past. All we have to do is look to Jesus. And so on the count of three, if you need to lay some things down, just come and let's spend a few minutes at these altars. We're going to lay hands on you. We're going to pray and just let the Holy Spirit do his thing. But don't leave today because if you leave today and it's you standing up on that pole, people are going to look and they're not going to, they're going to have a false interpretation of what atonement is. On the count of three, one, two, three. Just come at these altars. Just come to these altars and just get on your face and begin praying and asking the Holy Spirit, plead the blood of Jesus in your own life. Remind the enemy that what you have done has been paid for. It's been bought. You don't have to wait. It's already been put in the bank and you can draw from it this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just gonna have the worship team to begin to, to, to sing and we're gonna let them sing this song over you and then we're gonna just lay hands and pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let the heavens open.